This week on Writers Inc. If you're if you're building a new world, like you're gonna have to build these uh, sets. So if you're writing your script and it's like every other page or in a new location, that just can't be done. Like you cannot afford to build that many sets. So you need to think like um, more like you're staging a play. Like you know. We've got we've got this set, and then when the curtain comes down, we can change it around, and then we have this location, and it needs to, uh, you know, it needs to kind of fit that mold in order to to make sense. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. All right. Happy New Year, guys. Uh, man, New Year's Eve was wild. I wasn't sure I was going to make it, but but here I am. And and Zach is back. So uh, the, the first episode with the new intro with Zach, and he wasn't on it, but he's here now. So what's up, man? Yeah, you made that joke because I hit you up and I said I couldn't believe y'all didn't make that joke. <laughs> we were trying <laughs> to be like, nice to you. You guys finally get me on the intro and I'm absent that first episode. So... But that's okay. I was glad. I was glad to hear it. So I'm. Uh, but I'm glad to be back. So and I survived New Year's apparently. So <laughs> I, I I'm still I, I jumped in late at the beginning of this. So I guess we discussed like we're actually recording this on what is today December 30th. So New Year's hasn't actually happened yet. Um, so my oh my come brain, on JD. <laughs> my my brain is trying to wrap its head around this conversation <laughs> like it's like a bad time traveling movie for me. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to be sitting home doing absolutely nothing. So like new year's is going to be no different for me than, than any, any other night. Same uh, here. I'm, I, new year's is one of the holidays that I just don't give a crap about. Like I'll probably be in bed by nine 30. Yeah. So it's just, it's just whatever. It's just another day on the calendar flipping over. <laughs> I just ran out of my office really quick to, to refill my water before we started recording. And my, my wife is out there freaking out because we've got a, a house that we're buying in Georgia. And I think I sent you guys links to the, this place. Um, it got hit with a really bad hailstorm about two weeks ago. Oh. that just completely wrecked the roof on, on the, the house. And it, it's a big, you know, a big, big house. Um, so we got a quote to get the roof repaired and it's a little over $30,000. Um, the current sellers are willing, like their insurance company is willing to cover it. The problem is our closing is set for July or july uh, january 5th um so like the insurance isn't going to pay out before then the roof isn't going to get fixed before then so we've got two choices we can either delay closing until all those kind of things happen um or we could just take a, a credit you know on, on you know from the the seller um, but they're only willing to credit back ten thousand on a roof that we know is going to cost 30. Um, but if we delay the closing our interest like interest rates have gone up since we locked in and like to delay the closing beyond the date that it's supposed to be it's something like a thousand dollars a day to, to hold our current interest rate so she's out there just pulling her hair out and like she tried to corner me while i was grabbing my water to tell me all this stuff and i heard like half of it and then i ran in my office really quick and locked my door <laughs> and put my little i'm recording something right now note on my door so nobody would bother me and now i'm now i'm hiding in here You'll be podcasting the rest of the afternoon. I was going to say, this yeah. could be a three-hour episode of Writer's Inc., folks. Strap in. I'm, I'm looking at my windows thinking I could probably get out if I have to. It's... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's been one of those days. I, I did get some cool news, though. Like, I, I love robots. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but we've got, I think, six Roombas in the house, like the vacuum kind. We've got a bunch of those robot mops. Um, and I also hate plowing my driveway. And I got an email from a company out of uh, China that, that has a robot snow blower coming out um and they wanted to know if i'd be interested in being part of the beta program so i i jumped on that so i'm literally going to get a robot snowblower about a year before it hits the market and get to play with this, this, this thing out in my driveway so i, I don't know when that's going to show up but I'm, I'm psyched i got that message a little while ago there are so many jokes there i just don't even know where to start <laughs> yeah i know well here's the thing like we're like I, I think i've talked about this on the air before too like you know me going outside and, and shoveling snow you know like it, it's just silly because like i make a lot more money if my butt's planted in front of my Mac and I'm writing some kind of story. So I can pay somebody to do that. And that's what we're doing now. We pay some guy to come through with a snow plow um, and he hits it. But the problem is when somebody plows your driveway with a snow plow, they just pack down a bunch of it, like at the, the bottom and like it turns into this giant sheet of ice. You know, they get
get the top layer of snow out, but then the rest stays. Um, so I've been working with companies coming uh, to, to heat the driveway, which is a thing up here in, in New Hampshire. You, know, you can get a heated driveway. Um, so I've gotten quotes on that, but that's anywhere from like thirty to $50,000 to put in. Um, I thought you, know, you already it, had one. Thought we talked the, about the that. heated driveway. No, we, we've had houses that we looked at that oh, had man, them before. Now I'm disappointed. Your house sucks. I thought you had a heated driveway. <laughs> yeah, not, not yet. No, because there's there's other hoops I have to jump through there because like my driveway is sloped, which means I'd have to put a drain down at the bottom so I don't turn our, our little circle into an ice skating rink. Um, you know, a little portion of that is a what's called an easement. It's basically property that I share with one of my neighbors, a neighbor that we get along with. So I don't want to aggravate them by doing something. So like the idea of bringing in a robot snowblower that just solves all the problems is, is very very enticing to me. So I'm, I'm excited. I, I just love that you're, you know, you've been on TikTok two weeks and now you're on all these lists in China where they're sending you robotic snowblowers. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's one of those weird things that happens when you hit the New York Times bestseller list. Like people start sending you random free things. Like I, I get so many books in the mail now. It's it's crazy. Um, but but other stuff, you know, like they, they want you to put it in a book. You know, it's like they want me to talk about this robot lawn or robot you know, snowblower in a book, you know, like a product placement thing. So they, they send you free stuff. I've gotten TV. I've gotten stereos. I've gotten speakers, you know, like totally unsolicited. This stuff just shows up at the post office or UPS. So a very cool problem to have until you have too much of, you know, like I've got a closet with, with two yeah, extra I wouldn't speakers. I would want all in. that stuff. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's it, just a burden. Yeah. After I mean, a while, like cool, but yeah, you know. but like, you know, like I've, I've got extra speakers now because I, I don't know why speakers are even a thing, but like I've gotten like five sets of, of brand new speakers for free from, from three different companies. They just like, I'm on some kind of list and they just send them to me. Um, so yeah, I don't Can know. Can we go to back to the robot? Cause I, I'm, st- <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I'm wondering like, can you can you send the robot to the neighbor you don't get along with and just like let it go like oops like <laughs> I misprogrammed it like yeah can it like take her out or something? Well, here's here's the thing. So the robot that they're sending me is their beta robot, um, and the one that's actually going to hit the market next winter, like they're going to actually send me a free one. So like this one is basically just a test robot that I get to play with for a year, and then the the final one that is going to be on the marketplace, they're going to send me a brand new one. So I'll actually have two of these things. So if I wanted to, I really could give one of them away to to one of my neighbors, but I would probably give it to the the nice neighbor, you know, so that my my evil neighbor could stand out in their driveway while they're shoveling snow, and they could watch the two robots running around in the other yards doing it for them. I think that'll, that'll be more fun. What if you built a ring in your backyard and put the beta <laughs> versus the new one and have them like a death match, a robot death match? I, I am all for that. Maybe you guys need to come and visit for like a week and we can hammer that out. Uh, special hey, special Writers, Inc. episode with killer robots. Hey, I'd be down for that. So I don't even know what it's like to need a snowblower or a plow because I live in the freaking south. So, you know. Yeah. Just... Anyway, <laughs> okay, so we're done. Yeah, like that, that. That's that's about as far as that that can go. Oh, how about um, writing wise? What are you guys working on writing wise? I'm kind of stuck in this the same place I was before. I've got um, that script is with my agents. Uh, they're reading through it right now. We're going to try and figure out how to cut a couple of hours out of it. Um, I've got my, my latest book back from pretty much all my beta readers and my, my couple of agents um, with their suggestions. Uh, so I'm going through that right now, making all those those cuts, you know, yelling at everybody, yelling at the screen, going, no, oh, that has to stay because, and then, you know, I realize that they're right. And um, so I'm, I'm if, if everything works out, I got to chop about 30,000 words out of this book. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a, a lot of things come to light. You know, like I, I, you know, I tend to overcomplicate my plots. You know, like when I sat down to write this latest book, I told myself it's going to go in, the story is going to go in a very straight line. It's going to have a single point of view, first person narrative. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But then I just get to a point where I just can't help myself. I'm like a twist right here would be so awesome. And I'm going to do this. And then I do this and then I do that and I do this and I do that. And before I know it, I've got this knot of twists and it's a cool story for the most part. Um, but, but sometimes it gets really confusing. So one of the things that I've learned to really listen to my beta readers on is, you know, if, if they come upon a twist and it doesn't, you know, resonate with them the way that I want it to, if it confuses them, if it takes them out of the story, it makes them think something that they shouldn't be or whatever. Like I, I've got zero problem yanking that twist out, you know, unraveling whatever other parts of the story that it impacts and, and taking all that stuff out of there um, rather than, you know, trying to defend it or leave it because I, I know that, you know, if I leave that in there, I'm going to get a thousand emails from people down the road after the book comes out with the same problem that that one person had. So, you know, you have to be open to that kind of thing. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm just trying to hammer all that out. Hopefully hoping to have it done by the end of January. Mm. Yeah. Cool. How about you, Zach? What are you working on? Nah, you should go next. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll tell you why in a minute. All right. 
Uh, I'm going to have a great segue into our podcast as sponsor. Perfect. So you should okay. let me go last. Okay, I'll do that then. Uh, I sent my uh, manuscript for the next three-story method book on writing scenes to beta readers uh, today. And hard to believe it's been two years since we published Three-Story Method, uh, the flagship book. And so it'll be almost two years. Um, I, I was doing my best to channel the spirit of Kurt Vonnegut and Derek Sivers in the book. And I know Derek's not dead, but I was channeling his spirit anyways um, and trying to be really lean and, uh, and, and tone-wise. So I'm, I'll be really curious to see how that's received with the beta readers. And uh, just chugging along still on my uh, serial fiction project. So uh, pretty much uh, more of the same for me too. So Zach. I've, I've been back from vacation for two days and I'm just in KDP dashboard hell. Like that's what's what's going on with me. So uh, not to go into too many details, but behind the scenes, Jay and I are doing some intellectual property swapping, which involves me, him unpublishing stuff from his dashboard so that I can publish it, which Amazon does not like because they don't think I have rights to it. (laughs) And that's fine. We have all the proper paperwork for that, but like one of the uh, it's eight titles. So and one like I've I've already gotten stuff back on a few of them where they're like, "Oh, you have to prove this is you." And on one of them, they I sent them an email and a document and they were like, "Cool, approved. They published it." I sent the same email and document on another email and they were like, "Nope, this they rejected it." And I'm like, and won't email me back to tell me what's like well, what they need. Not even and on a, just on a random title. On on the second book of the series, when they accepted the yeah. document for the first book in the series. Yeah, they approved the first book in the series, and then the second and third books, they're like, no, this isn't enough. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, and then I have, like, I'm trying to also do the paperbacks, and now they're saying stuff is wrong with the covers. Like, that the, the, there was something about, and I didn't change anything. I think I took, like, a page or two out in the paperbacks, and they're like, oh, the text is too close to the edge. I'm like, we've had those paper books published for, like, three years. You know, just like that. And now you're going to reject it. And it's just, that's my headache I'm going through. And it's, uh, it's, it's, but I do have a book coming out, uh, or actually my book came out on New Year's Eve. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's Dead Past, the fifth book in my Dead South series. So, um, yeah, thank you to everybody who has been reading that all weekend on your New Year's Eve weekend. So, yeah. The, all right. So question on the, like, do you have a point person at Amazon or like is every one <laughs> of these problems coming from a different person and then you're responding and getting to a, somebody else and somebody else and somebody else or like, how's that all work? Yeah. I'm not JD Barker. So I don't have like an Amazon <laughs> rep. Well, I, I don't either. I'm, I'm just, oh, okay. I, th- so, I, I thought you said before you did. So, no, you, nah, it's I've just, got a, it's just, they're, they're just, you know, when the Kindle titles are in review, it's just, they're coming back to me with an email and telling me why I can't publish them. And I'm just emailing some random person you know, uh, who, yeah, is, is in some call center somewhere in the world. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like, and so I don't know. I'm, 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 it's all, it'll all be fine, but it's just, uh, now I will say for anybody, uh, ACX was easy. We had to move some audible titles from his account to my ACX account. And that went, that was like that. They were super helpful and moved it right over. I can see the lifetime sales in my account. Now we didn't lose any reviews, like none of that was super easy, but uh, migrating through KDP is definitely uh, has, has been become more of a pain in the butt. So, so, so if I shoot an email to Amazon and says, "Hey, somebody's trying to steal my books," and, and mention those couple of titles, that would probably really dude. Your... <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when I'm editing. I get really bored and I, I need outlets. So yeah, maybe I'll, I'll I'll pick on you. I'm gonna call your wife and tell her to, I don't know, something with real estate. I don't know. I got nothing. Jay. What are you gonna say? <laughs> Oh, well, I was just going to say, you know, if you if you have problems with getting in touch with uh, representatives from a publishing company, uh, you can't get to a, a real person. I know a place where you don't have that problem. Where's that, Jay? It's called Kobo Writing Life. And uh, it's this great company where uh, if you send an email, you're going to talk to a real live person. Uh, you can publish your books anywhere in the world. You can set your prices. You can do monthly promotional opportunities. And if you publish on Kobo Writing Life, you can still publish everywhere else. So if you're interested, make sure you check out our wonderful sponsors at KoboWritingLife.com. Also want to give a nice shout out to all of our patrons supporting the podcast. If you would like to ask us questions for the monthly Q&A episodes, 
You can do that be, by becoming a supporter at patreon.com slash writers inc podcast. And that brings us to the guest for the week. JD, who do we have up? We've got Hugh Howie coming back to fill us in a little bit more on wool. Um, I mean, I, I love the fact that he's willing to come on here and tell us what, what's happening and what's going on in, in this particular process because nobody does that. Nobody talks about any of this stuff. You know, like uh, authors get extremely secretive, and, and I know why. Like, you know, you feel like you're walking on eggshells. You know, you're answering to, you know, these Hollywood people that, you know, a lot of them are names that you recognize. Um, you don't want to step on any toes because you know that they could just squash you underneath their shoe <laughs> and make you disappear and move on to the next book. And, you know, like as, as an author, like you don't want to get in the middle of that machine because it's there's there's so much going on but like i love that he's he's willing to come on here and, and tell us some of this stuff so i'm really looking forward to this one uh, here he is hugh howie why are studios and production companies and people who own the ip so protective about information getting out before the product does uh it's a good question because i think in in the book world um it's very different than the, the Hollywood world um, in the book world, I think people are much more free about the ideas knowing that execution is everything. And there's so many books and they all overlap and that most people are following the author anyway, rather than the idea. Uh, a lot of people aren't sitting around waiting for like another space battle uh, book. They're waiting on, you know, another a book um, uh, by, Scalzi or, or Gaiman or uh, someone like that. So theaters don't have that uh, advantage. Like no one's waiting for the next thing from uh, MGM or uh, Fox. Like mm -hmm. no one cares. And no one's really <clears throat> waiting for, uh, there's only a handful of directors that, that draw people out, but they are waiting for the next big sci-fi thing. So um People have to, I think, be more protective of their plans when uh, there's there could be a race to the market for that that thing. And and Hollywood is such a copycat culture. The opposite way the book world is. In the book world, if you write something and the publishers have anything similar to it, they're like, we we can't do that. We already have that thing, and uh, they don't publish if other publishers are publishing something similar to that. And in the Hollywood world, you know, if someone's doing a biography about some, uh, you know, Wyatt Earp or someone, they'll do their own Wyatt Earp thing. They'll see which one wins out. If they're doing an animated bug film, they'll do an animated bug film. If, um, you know, superheroes are doing well, well, we've got superheroes. We're going to do our whole expanded universe. Um, you know, the James Bond franchise does well. So we launched, you know, Born and, uh, King make, you know, the Kingsman and all this other stuff. So because of, I think because of those uh, different interplays and the, the copycat culture versus what you see in, uh, in the literary world where it's less that, um, people are much more closely guarded and very secretive and very controlling when uh, certain information gets out. And, and part of the, what I really understand about that is there's such a delay to market when something's filming, it's so long before it's a product that wasting the hype too early is, is a big problem. And, and as soon as any information gets out, like Deadline and um, all the, the Hollywood rags uh, all race each other to spill the beans. So, um, yeah, so I guess it's a combination of those factors. But, um, uh, yeah, even just having a product in development is usually um, closely guarded until they determine that they need the, the marketing push to help them get the next step, you know? Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's, it, it's very interesting to me that uh, they seem to be very willing to attach names to projects, uh, but anything about the project tends to be kind of in the cone of silence. Yeah. If you think about it, what, attaching a name to it, they've got, a, they've got that, that person locked down, so you're not going to get them. So if they've got the next J.J. Abrams thing, um, that builds hype for the uh, project without tipping off, you know, the other studio to go get J.J. Abrams is too late. But if they say we're working on the next, you know, invasion thing, um, if you're if you can beat them by a month to theaters with your alien invasion thing, you're going to get all the alien invasion desire 
you know, out of the market. And when the next one comes along, it's like, oh God, not another one of those things. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't want to get the details wrong, but I've seen examples of when something was in development earlier or longer, but the, the kind of the copycat came out first. And the one that probably got the ball rolling to begin with ends up and looking like the copycat because people don't care, care about development cycle. They just um, know the release date. And that's what, you know, what matters the most. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating world uh, that Holly, those Hollywood folks. Well, it's, uh, it's early December as we're talking now. And uh, from my understanding, you're, you're getting some peaks at some, at some uh, dailies from wool. How's that going? I mean, it's really, uh, it's really a lot of fun and it uh, helps, um, helps with the FOMO of not being there on set every single day. Uh, it's tough leaving the set because, uh, you know, when you're there, you just kind of have your finger on the pulse and you know what's going on and you see all the problems and, and watch them uh, as they're being solved and um, getting to, you know, see the, the scripts uh, as they change and then in the scene as it's being um uh, as the scene's being captured, the final tweaks that are being made. Um, and as soon as you walk away from that, everything's just like a black hole over there. What's going on and who's on set today and what are they filming and how are the, how are the different uh, stages coming along? But when you're getting uh, dailies, you get to see the output, basically, you know, yesterday's footage, all the different takes, every angle. Uh, it's more content that you can, you know, it's there, you get what they shot for 12 hours. So you can't sit and watch it all, but you can go through and see the takes and see what they're going after. And it's wild. Cause I'm basically getting to watch the TV show in a rare, really raw form, but completely out of order. You know, oh, yeah. uh, the, the, one of the first things we shot for the season was the last scene anybody will see in the season. Um, so, uh, but you can start to piece it together and you get to see how each actor is, is creating their characters and you get to see that, uh, the different costumes and the, <clears throat> the degradation of the, of some relationships and other ones getting stronger. And it's just, it's, it's amazing to me the way actors can, um, know what their character feels in that moment rather than having to live through all the moments that got them there. Like, uh, I'm really impressed with how, how that works. Do do the dailies include? Uh, do they roll the camera the whole time? Like, are you getting directorial comments to actors? Are you getting stagehands moving things around? Is there any editing at all on these? Yeah, there's some. There's some editing. If there's a there's a you know a hard cut, uh, it'll end shortly after, and then it'll go to the next take with the uh, the time. Um, but uh, there are times where you you know it's all uh, right action and then you've got a few minutes of setting the scene up or getting things ready sometimes it's a continuous take like they'll finish a take and like okay let's do it again we're just gonna keep rolling and you'll get some of the um the director uh working on the scene and of course you get the outtakes like i'm getting way more outtakes than we'll ever be able to fit into any kind of uh, outtake highlight as someone who's just a fan of the behind the scenes stuff it's really cool watching all that and watching, watching the actors figure the scene out because in some of the early takes, uh, this is new stuff I'm learning is like, uh, I don't know if all directors do this, but um, uh, the couple of the directors that we've had on these episodes start with why you do the same scene, like um, maybe 20 times with four different angles, you know, maybe five takes from four different angles. And they start with these wide um, uh, shots because those are the scenes when the actors are really figuring the lines out. So you're, when you put the dialogue all together, you're using maybe dialogue from two or three takes, but you're using footage from eight different takes because you're not always seeing their lips really well. And so you start with the wide takes and you move into the medium and then you get the close up, you know, the over the shoulder if it's two people having dialogue. And by the time you get to that close up, uh, so when you hear in the first few takes, you're like, yeah, they're not really nailing it. And what I learned on set, you know, the writers and, and director and DP would all be like, uh, yeah, it's just, they're figuring it out. And it's like, I saw this consistently, like with the wide scene, you're getting the framing of the scene and the set. Um, but as they do the multiple takes, it really start to get limbered up and get into the, uh, 
Uh, and I think also they hold some back and wait till they get the close up and then they're really giving it all. Cause you can't exert maximum effort, you know, 12 hours. And so that's, that's been really informative to me to learn like that you work with the natural progression of the actors and how you frame your, your shot uh, uh, order. Uh, it's really, really quite clever. And it ends up by the time you see the, the final takes, you're just like, man, and, and even the people, like, you can hear the directors going like, ah, that was perfect. Like, that's incredible. And, you know, the actors know when they, when they nail it, too. So that's really satisfying. Yeah, I would have to think that, that most lay people would envision this much like live theater, where the actors just get on a stage and they perform and someone records it and then they move on to the next scene. But it, it is, uh, it is a, a very layered process. Uh, if you could ballpark this, in your opinion, what percentage of footage that's being recorded makes it into the final cut of the episode? Uh, a tiny fraction, because, uh, and not because it's not good stuff. It's just mostly the same stuff over and over again. Um, I'd be surprised if uh, two to five percent of what's filmed goes into the final episode. I was one of the things I've been most surprised by, and I, I've been told that this is being filmed kind of like a feature film with that the same amount of takes and um, like budget per final minute per uh, per polished minute, um, which means uh, they're not getting as much per day as you would think they would in order to get a whole season of TV shot. Like they'll spend a whole day shooting just to get like you know one conversation down. And uh, it's it's incredible the diligence that goes into making this like as good as it can be. Uh, really surprised. I thought it'd be more like I, I closer to how I imagine like soap operas, where it's just like, all right, say the line, t take, we got it. Like you know, check the footage, just move on. But uh, it's not like that at all. It's a lot of lot of repetition. And has that changed the way you view uh, long form st storytelling in general? Like. TV shows, movies, do you see it from a, a different perspective now because of this experience? Yeah, I think it's hard to learn anything new without it changing how you, you know, the the overall view you have a, of an issue. But uh, like, for instance, there was, there's one, there's one day of a, a character getting into like a fist fight um, and, you know, thrown up against a wall and like slamming them into a chair. And it's, uh, it's the actual actors. Like they've got, you can tell there's some padding for one of the characters in their back and they're, they've got the wall and the chair and everything set up to accommodate the, the abuse. Um, but even so, like, it's not like it's one take and then the guy gets to go, you know, get a, a cold soak and a massage. It's like 20 takes. And I was, I was shocked at the physicality of, some of these actors who are, you know, their, their, their talent is in their acting. They're not like athletes. They're not in the best physical shape and to endure what they endured just to get this one fight scene was like jaw dropping to me. I've always like, I think had uh, just a huge degree of respect for anything that gets made, just knowing how many hoops they have to make it through to get there. But watching, like, and I, I, so I had respect for things that got to the point of principal photography starting, but now my respect for how much everyone involved has to put into that set in, in sweat, blood, and tears, like that, my respect for that has gone through the roof for sure. And I'm sure that uh, a lot of this is going to inform subsequent projects. So you, you kind of mentioned, uh, in, in a general sense that you, you have a new project that's kind of hitting, hitting your desk. And I uh, wonder if you might want to talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, it's super exciting. It's definitely going to change some things. I'm going to like write way more fight scenes. I think this <laughs> has been fun to subject the uh, actors to. Um, yeah. So I uh, got uh, a deal to write a, a new pilot and I'm doing it with a writing partner, which is um, really exciting. We, uh, we wrote a screenplay earlier this year together and, had so much fun doing it. Uh, and it really just started as um, just mutual respect. Like I'm a huge fan of, uh, of his writing. And we, when I was out West visiting some friends, I drove up to uh, Portland where he lives and 
um, we were just going to work on this, this script together a little bit, but I was going over there at like seven o'clock in the morning and we write till eight o'clock at night. And in four days we had a, a feature film that we'd written that we really loved and uh, realized just how productive we were together and how much we, it didn't feel like work. We just enjoyed every second of it. Um, so I was like, let's, let's do like, let's write two movies a year like this. It's just so much fun. Eventually we'll write one that, um, you know, gets, gets picked up by somebody. And, uh, I was catching up with a studio that I had done another deal with and they were like, what else are you working on? And I told them an idea that I had years ago for a book that then got turned into a feature pitch that got interest from a director. We were working on it, uh, uh, put the project together when the pandemic happened. So it all, all that, all that got, uh, tabled and, and shelved. And so I just threw it out there as a project idea. Uh, but I thought it'd be better for TV and I reworked the pitch and on the spot, they were like, yeah, we're, we want to talk about this. And then when they, when they read the, the pitch document, they were like, great, go write a pilot. And so, <clears throat> yeah, that's been really cool. And uh, like I've said in this, my Twitter thread that I think is like pinned on my Twitter account that I assume every stage is the last stage in, in the development. So right now I'm just thinking like, I get to write a pilot. I'm super excited. They are paying uh, more than they would, my publisher would pay me to write a book basically to wow. write a pilot that might not lead anywhere. But uh, my goal is to, uh, with my uh, partner Matt, to write the best pilot we can, something um, that we would want to watch. But um, he's got a couple of things being shot right now. He's a very successful writer. And, and so both of us are going into it knowing um, like what we like about good story, but also what makes sense for studios. Like how can you write high concept sci-fi that is able to be filmed on a budget? And um, that's the big thing that uh, I wish I would have known early on in my career uh, that I understand now. Um, I had Sand, one of my uh, better selling books besides Wool, get picked up by the Sci-Fi Network. We had a pilot by Gary Witta who wrote, wrote one in the Book of Eli, um, wrote this amazing pilot. Sci-Fi absolutely loved it. Um, we had all the... Uh, we had the director on board. We had all the, the pieces in place. And Sci-Fi gave us basically a soft green light. They were like, we're making this. And Gary has been through this plenty of times. He's been written plenty of things that aren't getting made. So he knows how to deal with that disappointment. And he's written some of the best stuff out there that's been made. I think Rogue One is one of the best outside the original uh, Star Wars films. And a lot of my friends tell me that without even knowing that, um, you know, that I'm associated with him so uh he's seen it all and he was like it's time to shut, pop this uh champagne cork like uh this is going to get made and in the last minute they realized financially uh they don't think they could shoot it and make it profitable something they happened with the expanse for them wonderful show supremely popular but even with all the viewers they could get to it it was an expensive show to shoot so they had to actually cancel a show that was like one of its number one shows at the time. And luckily Amazon picked it up and saved the expanse, but uh, you know, the cost of filming something has to be taken into account. And luckily, uh, and kind of uh, uh, not by design though, it uh, worked out to our favor. This idea of mine like is uh, very affordable to shoot, but also very high concept sci-fi. And that's a really unique, uh, combination to, to land on. My first book series was like young adult uh, space opera and you, you, you can't film it. Like you would have to be, it's all CGI and uh, terribly expensive to film. And so any author who writes a book like that, they're wondering why Hollywood's not picking it up. Um, it, it's not just that your story uh, is good or bad. It's like how many sets are in it? How much, did you have aliens? Cause if you have aliens, like, that's super expensive. Um, and uh, those those things now make a lot more sense to me than they did when I was first starting out. So this is not an adaptation from an existing work. This is something you're writing strict directly for this project. Yeah, brand new IP. And uh, 
and and so that's fun. I've I've not been able to do that yet. Like everything that we've worked on has been adaptations from books, so the worlds are pretty established, and you have to kind of suit the existing material to this new medium. But when you're writing straight for TV, it's like you just get to think, you know, what makes for an uh, amazing pilot, what makes for a good season of TV, where do we want these characters to end up, what kind of characters do we want on in here, and when you're thinking about the um, locations, you're, you know, actually building the sets in your mind. You're like, uh, you know, our main locations are going to be like this, a small town, like a frontier town kind of thing. And you actually can imagine, okay, this is affordable to build. This is something you do on the sound stage, And these are the things that you would do on location and, um, and make it. So when the studio is reading it, they're like, the numbers make sense to them. They can take a fly, you know, you want, you want the um, show to be within, you know, their budget. And uh, that changes everything when you're not having to work from existing material. Like when, when we adapted Beacon 23, um, we have a decent budget, but like, you know, we can't, there's a, there's a character, like a, an alien type panther in the book. And like, you have to throw that out. And that's a major character uh, and a major part of the, sh of the, of the book. And you just have to figure out how to work around that because, um, you know, we had, we were in the writer's room and we had like an animal trainer come and, and show us different things that dogs can do and how we can redress a dog or, you know, basically blue screen it uh, and have it do some of the stuff like climb ladders, things that we would need in the story. And uh, yes, yeah, we realized like it's going to look terrible or it'll cost too much. And so we have to rewrite and being able to, not choose impossible problems for yourself from the get-go is, is very liberating. So you mentioned aliens uh, and, and CGI. What are some of the other things that uh, you might be thinking about as a storyteller that you're like, okay, in the creation of this, I have to avoid it because I just know the budget would, would, would you know, just, it, the project wouldn't work after that. Well, if you don't like, uh, you know, sci-fi stuff, like let's say you're telling a story in uh, New York, you can have lots of different settings. Like, okay, we want a shot, you know, we want some Central Park stuff. We want a shot with the Empire State Building behind it. We're going to do, you know, a water shot on the Hudson. Um, you can um, you can bring in a lot of different uh, set pieces, knowing that you're going to use existing materials and on-location stuff. Right. And then for the regular street and alley stuff, you've already got, you know, uh, a lot of that, a lot of that's already built that just stays on a lot of lots to be used over and over again. And the specific stuff, you just build that really quick. And easy. Um, if it's, you know, normal, uh, you know, contemporary times, like you just get existing furniture and throw it all together. If it's sci-fi stuff, like with wool, they had to build new furniture and like, so it didn't look like anything that we would have today. Uh, and that is a, it's like a furniture company. Like there's a designer that are, you know, uh, 3D renderings and blueprints and then the raw material and you have to file, you know, build it all from scratch and it has to be exotic, but familiar and all this stuff. Um, with a contemporary thing, like, okay, you just grab some furniture and it's, it's much easier and cheaper. Um, but if you're, if you're building a new world, like you're going to have to build these, uh, set so if you're writing your script and it's like every other page or in a new location that just can't be done like you cannot afford to build that many sets so you need to think like um more like you're staging a play like you know we've got we've got this set and then when the curtain comes down we can change it around and then we have this location and it needs to uh you know it needs to kind of fit that mold in order to to make sense mm. um uh, kind of on a different top, well, same topic, but uh, uh, unrelated to this. Um, I just read this last week that uh, there was a Game of Thrones prequel pilot that HBO had shot uh, for $30 million that the, the entire project got canceled. So they saw the pilot after spending $30 million on it. They were like, yeah, we'll do something else. And they're doing a different prequel that's getting made. But that $30 million is gone. And um, it's just hard to conceive <laughs> coming from the book world, how TV and film operate these days and the budgets that they 
deal with and the amount of um, loss that they're willing to to cope with. Uh, the, the book world, uh, $30 million would be, you know, launching, you know, several hundred careers. Um, but uh, yeah, that it, seems to be a, a serious shortcoming. <laughs> if you're if you're the owner of the of the studio to have to spend 30 million in order to make the decision as to whether or not you can afford it. Yeah, I think this is probably the, the maybe the highest uh, like pilot that went nowhere in history. So it's an outlier, but it's indicative of a system that can uh, make that choice, uh, knowing that the, we're, we're making a, a test show. We're going to spend this much money on it, not knowing if we're going to pick it up. And the, the amount of income they have and the amount of viewership and subscribers makes it all make sense to them. But it's still just jaw-dropping. But the same for commissioning a pilot. Like I, I don't, I was didn't know what the industry standard was, but I think like the median for a, a, a pilot, and there's some WGA guidelines where you have to pay certain amounts, but I think the, the minimum might be like 125, 150,000, and the median is like 200,000. And some people get seven figures to write a pilot. And this is writing the pilot. We don't, you don't know if it's like one in 10, one in a hundred of those um, get further developed and who knows how many actually get filmed, but um, it's a, it's a colossal amount of money being written and produced in order to try to find the, the handful of things that you think are going to be good enough to grab an audience. And then the next disappointment is that of all the things that get made, very few of them are, are, you know, universally lauded. Like people find problems with almost everything. And uh, very few things are like must watch TV. Like it seems like every season there's like two or three shows that everyone agrees you have to watch these shows and everything else is like, yeah, watch it if you're a fan of that genre or if you're, if it catches your fancy. But you would think with all of the calling and and the uh, filtering and the amount of money and talent in place everywhere, you would think that everything that came out would be fantastic. So that's also, you know, just sobering to realize. Is there a slush pile equivalent for uh, pilot episodes? Uh, that's a good question. I think it's a shame that stuff that doesn't get picked up never gets aired in any capacity. I think there's super fans out there that would uh, pay to watch things. And I think there's a lot of media uh, people like um, and people in the industry, writers and directors and actors who would pay to have access to all these pilots that never got, <clears throat> but anyway, those are, those are, you know, there's in the book industry, you have a remaindering uh, system for all the books that don't go sold and they end up finding the way to discount shelves and, and uh, wholesalers and other, avenues in order to try to sell the unsold um it'd be great if those one ch channel that just aggregated all these pilots that get passed on and you, you could just like tune in and watch uh i i know i would tune in for sure yeah. so much to learn especially learning from what didn't work and why it didn't get picked up uh same with scripts i've always said mm -hmm. i love reading scripts yep. and all the scripts that are written that don't get picked up, like put them on Kindle for, you know, five bucks. Like so many of us that, that have so much to learn. And like, I mean, there are so many Star Wars scripts that I would read and just like, you know, when you when you learn how to read a script, you see it just as vividly as if you're reading a book. And I, I would pay to read a lot of the uh, abandoned projects out there. Well, this, this co-writing, this pilot seems to be a very unique uh, goal or target. Uh, how are you? How are you and your partner approaching things like characterization and world building, setting? The, the, I mean, you're talking about one episode of of a story. You you kind of you're, you're putting all your money on that on that one episode, right? So how does that change your approach as opposed to mapping out a novel or thinking in in longer form? Yeah, it's great. It's a great question. Um, there are a lot of similarities to to mapping out a novel, you know, your first uh, scene and your first chapter have to hook people in for the duration of the novel, but you, you need to have an idea of where your novel is going before you start that first chapter. So, you know, we've talked about where the first season would end and what subsequent seasons could do and explore <clears throat> without 
you also don't want to hold back too much. You need to put enough into the pilot that um, viewers are hooked. Like I, one of the great pilots, I think Breaking Bad, um, by the end of the pilot, like we see that this guy is going to be cooking method on the run from the law. Like we don't, so we don't think, okay, by episode five, he's going to start uh, cooking meth. Like, how can you get a character to develop that much in one episode and still leave enough room for that character to develop over many seasons? And, um, you know, the one of the answers to that is to make sure your character is not anywhere close to where you want them to be by the end of season one, season five, uh, the pilot. Like, wherever you, whatever you think their life is now this normal, make it more normal or make it further removed from where they're going to end up by the, by the first uh, episode. If they're, if you want them to like, you know, meet somebody, make sure they're already with somebody and that you see that relationship like failing in the first like page of the episode so that finding someone is not like filling a vacuum, but replacing something that was already there. It's even more of a change. Um, so little, figuring out little things like that. Um, we develop it just by having lots of conversations. Um, we get to hang out in person quite a bit, but we do a lot of uh, Google Docs and just chatting. And uh, it, the beauty of working with someone else is that you, you, the, there's twice as much good material to work with. Uh, and it's twice as easy to throw away an idea that's not uh, perfect. So either one of us, uh, we, you know, we tentatively suggest something it's easy to like discard that replace it with something new much more so that you're doing it by yourself. Um, but that, that's been the easy parts coming up with the, the, with great ideas. I think we have the, uh, uh, the general story and the, the beats plotted out um, where we've got a pitch with the uh, studio uh, a week from today uh, or tomorrow. Um, and that's, we'll start writing after that, but, uh, until then, we're just, you know, trying to understand our world and the motivations of the characters and everything uh, so that we can pitch it to them. And then hopefully they'll have a few notes to um, help us uh, winnow down to the, the, the final path that we're going to write. I'm sorry. Did you mention your co-writer or can you mention your co-writer at this point? Uh, yeah, I think I can. I, well, I said his name is Matt, but uh, it's... Um, I, I don't know. Maybe it will wait in case the studio wants to announce it. Sure. Um, yeah, no problem. It's not a big deal because, again, like my assumption is that no one will ever read this and that <laughs> won't get paid. Uh, but the hope is that it's at least enticing enough that we get uh, a writer's room put together because that, to me, is the absolute, uh, the, the pinnacle of, of my writing experiences has been like in a room with a bunch of creative people working on a show together. It's just my absolute happy place. Are, are you and Matt getting to the point where you are looking at uh, 52 minutes of real estate or whatever it happens to be? Are you, are you getting into like, okay, we only got two minutes and we got to accomplish this. Or is that something that comes later in the writing once you've got the green light to go? Uh, we're close to that. We're, we're mostly talking about what needs to happen to certain acts. We know how many pages we have to work with for each, for the teaser at each act. We know where the characters need to end up, but uh, we—it's um, really weird how when you've done this a few times, how you don't have to micromanage the page count. Like you're—you just get a sense for how long it needs to be. The same, we have an intuitive sense for how long sentences need to be and how long paragraphs need to be, and the same happens within big structural parts of books and scripts. And when we wrote a screenplay together, we were like, yeah we needed to be here on page 45 and it's page 44. It's, it's really spooky how you just kind of feel that this is going on too long or you need more here and your brain's constantly sorting that and uh, making little decisions to, to lead you to the right place. But yeah, we, we, we talk about the beats and how much we really have. And I think it's, you, you, you uh, intuitively get very close to your goal before you even start trying to uh hone in on it precisely yeah yeah well this is uh this is fascinating stuff i i, I love i love hearing about it maybe uh maybe a good way to kind of wrap it up for for this session is um i know you you're, you're probably not but are you are you thinking ahead like is this the 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 pilot the movie scripts 
do you see yourself working more in that realm than than in novels at some point, or do you feel like you're just kind of taking it one project at a time? I think there's enough. I think there's enough time for both. Uh, um, I I think like one or two books a year is a good uh, rate for me. That leaves a lot of free time. Um, you know, I I wrote uh, two books this year, and it uh, took up about uh, six months of my writing time. And on top of that, I was doing a lot of script work and other stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, you can be very efficient when you work on, on script things. I think one thing that'll change is if something starts getting made and we're show running or we're uh, in a writer's room for uh, eight to 10 weeks or something like that, um, then, you know, at some point you can get busy enough in Hollywood that you're writing one book a year instead of two books a year. But that would be a really lucky problem to have with, you don't get to choose how busy you stay in Hollywood. Someone else chooses for you. And I assume nothing will ever get made again. Like uh, another thing that I've learned, I was went to a, a Broadway uh, opening last night, which is like my first time being at an opening, which is a lot of fun. I saw you tweet about it today. Yeah, it was like really cool because what was great is like being in the audience, realizing that a lot of these actors on stage, you've been workshopping this, they've done it in other cities. Um, but last night was their official first night as a Broadway actor. And so like someone would come on the stage and pe- most of the people in the audience are invested in the show and, and have helped, you know, bring the show to fruition. And so you would give someone an, an, an ovation or applause that would go on for minutes. And, in, and, you know, by tonight, tomorrow, it'll be, you know, a 10 second applause. But last night it was like a minute. And, the reason is like you're sitting there just like so appreciative of what they're feeling as their life changes and crosses a new uh, uh, boundary and, and you want them to feel that moment as much as possible, you know. Um, and afterwards, talking with some people in, in the cast and some writers, uh, one of the, the, the writer who wrote the screenplay, the, the script of Miss Doubtfire uh, 29 years ago was there. Um, and she was talking about all the projects that she's working on and pitching, and she's had a lot of success. Um, uh, but everything that she writes, she has to go through the same process of trying to get someone to say yes along the way. And the chances of anything getting made are almost as slim for her as someone who's never made anything. And that should sober everybody who wants to be in this industry and be involved, wonders why they don't have more success or can't get something made. I've got so many successful friends, uh, people that won Academy Awards, um, who it's a fight every day for someone to fund their their next project. So that to me really balances like, A, it makes me really appreciative of anything that I get to the next step. But as I start over again, I always assume like, it's not gonna go anywhere because just because you've had something clear a hurdle doesn't give you any right to clear that hurdle the, the next go around like a product has to be good and has to be at the right time it's going up against a lot of other great material you got to have the right people excited about it and, and on board so um it's not like i get to choose like do i want to write books or do i want to go like make a whole bunch of tv shows uh i, I don't get to choose that and i assume it's it won't be an option for me so I'll write the scripts because they're fun and uh, and because it's such a wonderful medium to play in. And I'll write the books because I know those will get read and consumed and there'll be an audience for that. But uh, if if Hollywood, you know, opens up more doors, yeah, you have to take those adventures while they're available because you just don't know when you'll, you'll ever get that opportunity again. JD, I want to start with you on, on this one. Uh, You've been working on a script, and Hugh was really uh, cool and t- talking a little bit about his his process right now. So, uh, did you take any notes there? Any anything like caught caught your ear that you're gonna you know use in your process? 
Well, kind of. Um, you know, like when I wrote for Forsaken, I like I didn't. You know, Hollywood wasn't even something that I thought about. Um, when Forum K, when I was working on that, um, you know, like it sold for feature film. Um, you know, before publication went. So like when I was working on the rest of the ones in that series, like that was definitely something front and center in my mind. Um, but I hadn't really had a whole lot of conversations with the people in that world yet. Um, by the time we finished, you know, like a couple years later, you know, working on that, and I and I wrote Caller's Game. Like that was definitely at the forefront of my my thoughts. You know, the pandemic was just picking up um you know i, I had a friend that's working on the uh, jack ryan for amazon and, and like the entire production got got halted and i'm pretty sure they haven't even picked back up yet um mainly because of the, the large crowd scenes and the amount of travel worldwide and stuff that they had to do um so i was having those kind of conversations behind the scenes so when i wrote callers game you know like 90 percent of that book takes place in a, a radio broadcast booth you know with a handful of people and you know like that was an intentional thing i was like if this is going to sell like this is the time to make that and, and i was hearing that from people working in Hollywood, you know, like they were, you know, projects were getting shelved, getting put on hold. Um, they were hemorrhaging money because, you know, when you take something like Jack Ryan, you know, you, you can't, you've got all those sets, you've got all those people, you know, if you plan on picking it back up again, you have to pay everybody, you have to store everything, you have to keep it all, you know, kind of in that holding pattern. And it's extremely expensive, you know, without any of the money really coming in. Um, so I was hearing about those problems. And at the same time, those same people, you know, that were filming stuff like that, were out looking sp specifically for projects that they could film very quickly during a pandemic um, to kind of offset some of that bleeding. They wanted something that they could, you know, film very fast with a handful of people and get out there in the marketplace to bring in some cash to line the coffers so that they can keep some of these other big productions on, on going. So, yeah, so when I was writing Caller's Game, I guess is the moral of the story. I, I was purposely thinking that and I tried to keep it in mind through the, the whole thing. And, you know, I, I tend to do that now as I write as well, you know, you know, budgeting and all those types of things. You know, he had mentioned aliens, you know, like if you throw one alien in there, you know, that's adding some zeros to that, that production cost. You know, you have to be cognizant of that if, if you ever plan to, to venture into that world. Um, I, I had heard a quote years back and I can't remember who said it, um, but the quote was, um, books are movies of the mind with an unlimited budget. You know, which is very true. You know, a book, you know, you can tell whatever story you want. The mind is going to fill in the blanks. It doesn't matter what the dollar amount of film it is going to be um, unless you decide to actually take that out to Hollywood. Yeah, that's you, you kind of brought up what I was really fascinated with. It's just I'm always fascinated with the the budget stuff. And um, I mean, I think we've even talked about on the podcast before, because I think I asked you about like writing when you're writing your books. Do you think about possible film adaptation and stuff? And I think at some point, like especially when you're where you're at in your career, where, um, you know, you you. Or, or you know people are looking to option your stuff like pretty much anytime you put something out like it feels like you'd have to be looking at that and you know when when he mentioned uh Be beacon 23 and i and i read that book and he mentioned i know the character he's talking about they have to eliminate and i was like wow i was like that's a pretty big deal <laughs> you know and and stuff but uh but you know I, and, and that's one of those things too where um I always, I always kind of try to view the adaptation of the movie or the show. You know, you, you always hear the whole thing. It's, it's, you know, the book is better. It's not like I, in my mind, it's just not even the same thing. Like it's just, it's almost uh, based off the book, not like a re does that make sense? What I'm saying? Like I always try, I just keep, I always look at adaptations as like a separate thing now and don't sit there and try to compare it to the book. Like as best I can for a lot of those reasons. Cause you don't know the stuff that's going on behind the scenes that is making them, have to make these decisions to change things in in the book when they're writing the screenplay. Yeah, it, it's honestly extremely rare for a book to be adapted, you know, where they follow the entire story all the way through and with, with very little changes. And I can think of a couple off the top of my head, you know, like Silence of the Lambs was a really good one. Um, but they did take stuff out, you know, like if you watch that movie and you compare it to the book, you know, there, there's a lot that was taken out, but like it doesn't feel that way. You know, it still tells the same story, but it's, you know, in, in its own unique way. And there's there's other ones where they've completely had to, to read you know, redo the story in order to make it work. And, you know, that, that those kind of things, you know, you definitely, you know, you, you see a lot more of it once you're, you know, the curtain gets pulled back and you're kind of part of it. Um, I've got a lot of people that I've talked to, you know, showrunners and directors and stuff like that on other projects that have passed on, you know, one book or another. Um, but we still want to work together. We still keep in touch, you know, so that's something else that I tend to keep in mind, you know, as I, you know, come up with an idea for a story, like, is this going to fit so-and-so? And if it is, you know, like I have one right now where I looped the, that, that particular person in and, and told them what I was going to write before I started writing it and ask, hey, do you think this is something you would be into? Um, you know, to kind of prime 
prime that, that pump before it even gets there. So I know when that book is finished, I can hand it off to them probably, you know, about the same time I send it to my agent. Um, there's a very good shot that it's, it's going to get options. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird world. Once you break into it, it definitely gets, I don't want to say easier because that's not the right word. It's near impossible to get anything made. Um, but it, you know, it, it does get a little simpler to understand. Um, and, and it helps, you know, the, the longer you're in that game. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too. Like, I mean, you know, you kind of talked about things that are rare and stuff. I mean, it's also, you, you don't, it's not too often you see the author also screenwrite and do just as good of a job, you know, like the, I mean, honestly, the best one I could think of is like The Exorcist. You know, like William Peter Blade did an amazing job on the screenplay. And obviously the novel is, is a classic novel as well. Like that's a – and it's just – it's such a different thing, you know. And I, I loved him bringing up too how he wishes, you know, more of these, these abandoned screenplays would just get put on Kindle or something because there probably is a lot you could learn from those. I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah, and, and he's right too. Like you develop a an, an eye or an ear or whatever you want to call it when you're reading a screenplay. Like if you read enough of those, you start filling in the blanks. Like you you know what that would have looked like as a as a book. You start seeing what it's going to look like as a movie. Um, you can see those cuts and 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 screenplays are, are a lot of fun to read. I mean, I I've got so many of them that you know and you can get almost all of them. I think at this point on on the web, it's not too hard to find. Um, but when you actually start writing them, like it, it you know I I went out there and I I've sourced out some of my favorite movies and looked at them and. And, you know, I look at every single thing about it, you know, the cuts, you know, how they describe everything, how they describe the scenes, um, you know, the dialogue, you know, it's so tight, you know, like those types of things. Um, you know, Gone Girl is one of my all time favorites. Um, you know, the, the screenplay is phenomenal. And, and that, you know, I, I don't know if it was Gillian Flynn's first attempt at a screenplay. Um, definitely her, her first, you know, obviously one that was made. Um, but like there, it's absolutely perfect from start to finish. And, and I know a lot of work went into that to, to get it there. Um, you know, those are the kind of things that I, I really look at, you know, so I, in that case, like I went out there, I found the original or the, the final script for Gone Girl. And then I sourced out earlier versions of that same script because I wanted to see what it changed. Um, so I tend to do that quite a bit too. I try to find different drafts of, of screenplays and you'd be surprised, you know, the movies, you know, the, the five, six, 10, 20 different drafts before something gets to the screen. Like there's a lot happening there. Cool. Nice. You know, yeah. One of the other things that, that he brought up, um, you know, just shooting out of order. Uh, if anybody ever gets the opportunity to get on some type of film or TV set, you know, you should definitely take it because um, it, it gives you a whole new respect for the, the actors and actresses, you know, and, and the fact that they can do this, you know, like he mentioned that they were shooting the final scene of the series, you know, they shot that at the beginning. So you, you have to think about the emotions, you know, like everything that has to be portrayed by that actor or actress, you know, for that final scene, because obviously it's a climax, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's happened prior, but you know, they're tackling that first and, you know, then they might hit something that happens in the middle or something that happens at the beginning and they have to dial back all those emotions because their character doesn't know this, this and that yet. Um, you know, but they, they, they're so they do it so effortlessly it's it's fun to watch um that being said it's also extremely tedious you know he kind of brought this up like i've seen this where they they have one conversation that's maybe two minutes long in the final final product and they'll spend a day or two just shooting it you know from different angles you know 20 or 30 takes like this and then they pause for for an hour or two and move the cameras move the lights you know reset everything that everybody everybody comes back and they do it again and do it again and do it again um yeah, I mean, there's just so much work that happens behind the scenes. But I, I think any any author, anybody who wants to get into that world, should definitely try to to get out there and and, and check it out. What was that your experience when you starred in True Lies and Twenty One Jump Street? <laughs> no, um, <laughs> and, 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 and no, I did not. I was an extra um, in in those. I, I had a speaking role on Twenty One Jump Street, but yeah, like that that was one of them. Like honestly, that was one of the reasons why I didn't want to stay in that world because like there was a scene that we were filming um, for Twenty One Jump Street. It was Johnny Depp, and it was a spring break episode down in Miami. Um, we spent about three days inside of a. Um, uh, like an arcade, you know, it was like an outdoor bar arcade kind of thing, filming the same scene over and over. And I wasn't in this scene, but I wasn't allowed to leave. You know, like you're not allowed to go anywhere. You have to stay close by, which is why you always see actors playing basketball and doing this or doing that. Um, you know, hanging out in their trailer. And yeah, it's just, it's so freaking boring. Um, honestly, like I, lo I love theater. Like theater is a lot of fun. Like if you want to get into acting, um, you know, like that's really, you know, like I think it's a lot better of a venue or it's a lot more, it's the money's not as good, but it's more fun to actually do. Um, and that's another whole thing. Like, you know, you see a lot of, you know, like when, when they do theater, like they fine tune that script every single performance. 
And that's why some of the best movies that are made from from um, you know theatrical stuff, you know, or, or what I'm getting at is the, some of the best scripts come from theatrical stuff. So like A Few Good Men, um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you know, like the dialogue and those types of things is phenomenal. And it's because of that you know production had been done thousands of times before they actually put it on film and they got that chance to fine tune it. And what uh, he was talking about, they go through that same process, but those actors and actresses have to fine tune it in, you know, five takes, 10 takes. And, and that's why he was mentioning they do the, you know, the distance shots first, you know, where they try to get a feel for it. Um, but the, the evolution that happens between that first distance shot and the final shot they put in the can is, is phenomenal. Like everything just clicks and, you know, these people are just so good at their job and, and able to just, you know, completely adapt. They don't, they hone in on exactly what's working, dial out whatever's not, um, and, and they tweak it and they, they nail it, you know, like really, really fast. You know, soap operas, you know, he had mentioned those too. Like that's, that's another fun one. If you go to New York, you know, you can attend a lot of the recordings of the, the soap operas that they film there. And a lot of those are done live. A lot of them are done with one or two takes at the most. Like they don't, they don't reshoot something unless somebody flubs their line. Um, and that's, that's some of the most talented people I've ever seen work in that industry because huh. they're literally going through an hour, you know, of dialogue that they just learned the, you know, probably 10 minutes before because they get a new script four or five times a week. And, you know, they're, they're out there and they're acting it out and they're done with it and they move on to the next scene. Like, you know, th these people have so much talent and, the, you know, you, you don't see it. You don't realize it when you're watching it on, on screen. And I guess that that's another superpower in of itself. The fact that they make it look so easy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, it's uh, it's always fun talking to you. And uh, I, I just want to mention, too. You know, we have a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes. There's a big puzzle that's involved with booking guests and recording guests and placing the episodes. So sometimes it'll show up, uh, our conversation will show up as a bonus episode. Sometimes it'll come in the main feed like it is today. It'll just all depend on what's happening at that moment of time. But uh, again, we are so grateful uh, to Hugh Howie to, um, you know, for agreeing to keep us updated and talk periodically. And uh, it's great to just chronicle this whole process. And um, I'm, I'm fascinated by it and I just love uh, and it's and he's such a great guy that like everyone can root for him you know and I and I think that's what's really cool whether your weight you come way back from the indie side or from the trad pub side uh, you know everyone's really rooting for Howie because he, he's a good guy so anything else all right who we got up next week JD uh, next week we've got Elle McKenzie she's the media affiliate manager for bookshop.org um, so I imagine at, at this point, a lot of you, you know, our listeners know who bookshop.org is or, or, or have visited that site. Um, it's a very cool concept and, they, and it's not very old. They haven't been around for very long, but essentially any, any book you buy on there, it profits your local bookstore, um, which is, you know, it's definitely helped quite a bit through the pandemic. But I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what she's got to say um, and, you know, maybe what they have planned for after, you know, hopefully COVID is behind us and um, you know, people are visiting bookstores on a more of a regular basis, but they, they've kept a lot of stores afloat. Um, and I'm so grateful for that. Excellent. So we'll be looking forward to uh, sharing a little uh, bookshop.org with you next week to our listeners. Make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.